Book six, chapters twenty seven through twenty nine of On War, volumes two and three, by Karl von Clausewitz, translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Chapter twenty seven, defence of a theatre of war. Having treated of the most important defensive means, we might perhaps be contented to leave the manner in which these means attach themselves to the plan of defence as a whole to be discussed in the last book, which will be devoted to the plan of a war. For from this every secondary scheme, either of attack or defence, emanates and is determined in its leading features, and moreover in many cases the plan of war itself is nothing more than the plan of the attack or defence of the principal theatre of war. But we have not been able to commence with war as a whole, although in war, more than in any other phase of human activity, the parts are shaped by the whole, imbued with and essentially altered by its character. Instead of that, we have been obliged to make ourselves thoroughly acquainted in the first instance with each single subject as a separate part. Without this progress from the simple to the complex, a number of undefined ideas would have overpowered us and the manifold phases of reciprocal action in particular, would have constantly confused our conceptions. We shall, therefore, still continue to advance towards the whole by one step at a time. That is, we shall consider the defence of a theatre in itself, and look for the thread by which the subjects already treated of connect themselves with it. The defensive, according to our conception, is nothing but the stronger form of combat the preservation of our own forces and the destruction of those of the enemy, in a word, the victory, is the aim of this contest, but at the same time it is not its ultimate object. That object is the preservation of our own political state and the subjugation of that of the enemy, or again, in one word, the desired peace, because it is only by it that this conflict adjusts itself and ends in a common result. But what is the enemy's state in connection with war? Above all things, its military force is important than its territory, but certainly there are also still many other things which, through particular circumstances, may obtain a predominant importance. To these belong, before all, foreign and domestic political relations, which sometimes decide more than all the rest. But although the military force and the territory of the enemy alone are still not the state itself, nor are they the only connections which the state may have with war, still these two things are always preponderating, most immeasurably surpassing all other connections in importance. Military force is to protect the territory of the state, or to conquer that of an enemy. The territory, on the other hand, constantly nourishes and renovates the military force. The two, therefore, depend on each other, mutually support each other, are equal in importance one to the other but still there is a difference in their mutual relations. If the military force is destroyed, that is, completely defeated, rendered incapable of further resistance, then the loss of the territory follows of itself. But on the other hand, the destruction of the military force by no means follows from the conquest of the country, because the force may of its own accord evacuate the territory in order afterwards to reconquer it the more easily. Indeed, not only does the complete destruction of its army decide the fate of the country, but even every considerable weakening of its military force leads regularly to a loss of territory. On the other hand, every considerable loss of territory does not cause a proportionate diminution of military power. In the long run it will do so, but not always within the space of time in which war is brought to a close. From this it follows that the preservation of our own military power and the diminution or destruction of that of the enemy take precedence in importance over the occupation of territory and therefore is the first object which a general should strive for. The possession of territory only presses for consideration as an object if that means diminution or destruction of the enemy's military force has not affected it. If the whole of the enemy's military power was united in one army, and if the whole war consisted of one battle, then the possession of the country would depend on the issue of that battle. Destruction of the enemy's military forces, conquest of his country, and security of our own, would follow from that result, and in a certain measure be identical with it. Now the question is, what can induce the defensive to deviate from this simplest form of the act of warfare? 
and distribute his power in space. The answer is the insufficiency of the victory which he might gain with all his forces united. Every victory has its sphere of influence. If this extends over the whole of the enemy's state, consequently over the whole of his military force and his territory, that is, if all the parts are carried along in the same movement which we have impressed upon the core of his power, then such a victory is all that we require, and a division of our forces would not be justified by sufficient grounds. But if there are portions of the enemy's military force, and of country belonging to either party, over which our victory would have no effect, then we must give particular attention to those parts, and as we cannot unite territory like a military force in one point, therefore we must divide our forces for the purpose of attacking or defending those portions. It is only in small, compactly shaped states that it is possible to have such a unity of military force, and that probably all depends upon a victory over that force. Such a unity is practically impossible when larger tracts of country, having for a great extent boundaries coterminous with our own, are concerned, or in the case of an alliance of several surrounding states against us. In such cases, divisions of force must necessarily take place, giving occasion to different theatres of war. The effect of a victory will naturally depend on its greatness and that on the mass of the conquered troops. Therefore, the blow, which if successful will produce the greatest effect, must be made against that part of the country where the greatest number of the enemy's forces are collected together. And the greater the mass of our own forces, which we use for this blow, so much the surer shall we be of this success. This natural sequence of ideas leads us to an illustration by which we shall see this truth more clearly. It is the nature and effect of the centre of gravity in mechanics. As the centre of gravity is always situated where the greatest mass of matter is collected, and as a shock against the centre of gravity of a body always produces the greatest effect, and further, as the most effective blow is struck with the centre of gravity of the power used, so it is also in war. The armed forces of every belligerent, whether of a single state or of an alliance of states, have a certain unity, and in that way connection. But where connection is, there come in analogies of the centre of gravity. There are, therefore, in these armed forces, certain centres of gravity, the movement and direction of which decide upon other points. And these centres of gravity are situated where the greatest bodies of troops are assembled. But just as, in the world of inert matter, the action against the centre of gravity has its measure and limits in the connection of the parts, so it is in war, and here, as well as there, the force exerted may easily be greater than the resistance requires. And then there is a blow in the air, a waste of force. What a difference there is between the solidity of an army under one standard, led into battle under the personal command of one general, and that of an allied army extended over fifty or a hundred miles, or it may be even based upon quite different sides of the theatre of war. There we see coherence in the strongest degree, unity most complete. Here, unity in a very remote degree, often only existing in the political view held in common, and in that also in a miserable and insufficient degree, the cohesion of the parts very weak, often quite an illusion. Therefore, if on the one hand, the violence with which we wish to strike the blow prescribes the greatest concentration of force, so in like manner, on the other hand, we have to fear every undue excess as a real evil, because it entails a waste of power, and that in turn a deficiency of power at other points. To distinguish these centra gravitas in the enemy's military power, to discern their sphere of action is therefore a supreme act of strategic judgment. We must constantly ask ourselves what effect the advance or retreat of part of the forces on either side will produce on the rest. We do not for this lay claim in any way to the discovery of a new method. We have only sought to explain the foundation of the method of all generals in every age in a manner which may place its connection with the nature of things in a clearer light. How this conception of the centre of gravity of the enemy's force affects the whole plan of the war, we shall consider in the last book. For that is the proper place for the subject, and we have only borrowed it from there to avoid leaving any break in the sequence of ideas. By the introduction of this view, we have seen the motives which occasion a partition of forces in general. These consist fundamentally of two interests which are in opposition to one another. The one, the possession of territory, strives to divide the forces. The other, the effort of force against the centre of gravity of the enemy's military power, 
combines them again up to a certain point. Thus it is that theatres of war, or particular army regions, originate. These are those boundaries of the area of the country, and of the forces thereupon distributed, within which every decision given by the principal force of such a region extends itself directly over the whole, and carries on the whole with it in its own direction. We say directly, because a decision on one theatre of war must naturally have an influence, more or less, over those adjoining it. Although it lies quite in the nature of the thing, we must again remind our readers expressly that here as well as everywhere else our definitions are only directed at the centres of certain speculative regions, the limits of which we neither desire to, nor can we, define by sharp lines. We think, therefore, a theatre of war, whether large or small, with its military force, whatever may be the size of that, represents a unity which may be reduced to one centre of gravity. At this centre of gravity the decision must take place, and to be conqueror here means to defend the theatre of war in the widest sense. End of chapter 27 Chapter 28. Defence of a Theatre of War Continued Defence, however, consists of two different elements. These are the decision and the state of expectation. The combination of these two elements forms the subject of this chapter. First, we must observe that the state of expectation is not, in point of fact, the complete defence. It is only that province of the same in which it proceeds to its aim. As long as a military force has not abandoned the portion of territory placed under its guardianship, the tension of forces on both sides created by the attack continues, and this lasts until there is a decision. The decision itself can only be regarded as having actually taken place when either the assailant or defender has left the theatre of war. As long as an armed force maintains itself within its theatre, the defence of the same continues, and in this sense the defence of the theatre of war is identical with the defence in the same. Whether the enemy in the meantime has obtained possession of much or little of that section of country is not essential, for it is only lent to him until the decision. But this kind of idea by which we wish to settle the popular relation of the state of expectation to the whole is only correct when a decision is really to take place and is regarded by both parties as inevitable. For it is only by that decision that the centres of gravity of the respective forces and the theatre of war determined through them, are effectually hit. Whenever the idea of a decisive solution disappears, then the centres of gravity are neutralised. Indeed, in a certain sense, the whole of the armed forces become so also, and now the possession of territory, which forms the second principal branch of the whole theatre of war, comes forward as the direct object. In other words, the less a decisive blow is sought for by both sides in a war, and the more it is merely a mutual observation of one another, so much the more important becomes the possession of territory, so much the more the defensive seeks to cover all directly, and the assailant seeks to extend his forces in his advance. Now, we cannot conceal from ourselves the fact that the majority of wars and campaigns approach much more to a state of observation than to a struggle for life and death. That is a contest which, one at least of the combatants, uses every effort to bring about a complete decision. This last character is only to be found in the wars of the 19th century to such a degree that a theory founded on this point of view can be made in relation to them. But as all future wars will hardly have this character, and it is rather to be expected that they will again show a tendency to the observation character, therefore any theory to be practically useful must pay attention to that. Hence we shall commence with a case in which the desire of a decision permeates and guides the whole. Therefore with real or, if we may use the expression, absolute war, then in another chapter we shall examine those modifications which arise through the approach, in a greater or less degree, to the state of a war of observation. In the first case, open bracket, whether the decision is sought by the aggressor or the defender, close bracket, the defence of the theatre of war must consist in the defender establishing himself there in such a manner that, in a decision, he will have an advantage on his side at any moment. This decision may either be a battle or a series of great combats, but it may also consist in the resultant of mere relations, which arises from the situation of the opposing forces, that is, possible combats. If the battle were not also the most powerful, the most usual, and the most effectual means of a decision in war, as we think we have already shown on several occasions, still the mere fact of it being, in a general way, 
one of the means of reaching this solution would be sufficient to enjoin the greatest concentration of our forces which circumstances will in any way permit a great battle upon the theatre of war is a blow of the centre of force against the centre of force the more forces can be collected into the one or the other the surer and greater will be the effect therefore every separation of forces which is not called for by an object open bracket, which either cannot itself be attained by the successful issue of a battle or which itself is necessary to the successful issue of a battle close bracket, is blamable but the greatest concentration of forces is not the only fundamental condition it is also requisite that they should have such a position and place that the battle may be fought under favourable circumstances the different slopes in the defence which we have become acquainted with in the chapter on the methods of defence are completely homogeneous with these fundamental conditions there will therefore be no difficulty in connecting them with the same according to the special requirements of each case but there is one point which seems at first sight to involve a contradiction in itself and which as one of the most important in the defence requires explanation so much the more it is the hitting upon the exact centre of gravity of the enemy's force if the defender ascertains in time the roads by which the enemy will advance and upon which in particular the great mass of his force will be found for certainty he may march against him on that road this will be the most usual cause for although the defence produces the attack in measures of a general nature in the establishment of strong places great arsenals and depots and in the peace establishment of his army and thus gives a line of direction to the assailant in his preparations still when the campaign really opens the defender in relation to the aggressor has the peculiar advantage in general of playing the last hand to attack a foreign country with a large army very considerable preparations are required provisions stores and articles of equipment of all kinds must be collected which is a work of time while these preparations are going on the defender has time to prepare accordingly in regard to which we must not forget that the defensive requires less time generally speaking because in every state things are prepared rather for the defensive than the offensive but although this may hold good in the majority of cases there is always a possibility that in particular cases the defensive may remain in uncertainty as to the principal line by which the enemy intends to advance and this case is more likely to occur when the defence is dependent on measures which of themselves take a good deal of time as for example the preparation of a strong position further supposing that the defender places himself on the line by which the aggressor is advancing then unless the defender is prepared to take the initiative by attacking the aggressor the latter may avoid the position which the defender has taken up by only altering a little his line of advance for in the cultivated parts of europe we can never be so situated that there are not roads to the right or left by which any position may be avoided plainly in such a case the defender could not wait for his enemy in a position or at least could not wait there in the expectation of giving battle but before entering on the means available to the defensive in this case we must inquire more particularly into the nature of such a case and the probability of its occurrence naturally there are in every state and also in every theatre of war open bracket, of which alone we are at present speaking close bracket, objects and points upon which an attack is likely to be more efficacious than anywhere else upon this we think it will be better to speak when we come to the attack here we shall confine ourselves to observing that if the most advantageous object and point of attack is the motive for the assailant in the direction of his blow this motive reacts on the defensive and must be his guide in cases in which he knows nothing of the intentions of his adversary if the assailant does not take this direction which is favourable to him he forgoes part of his natural advantages it is evident that if the defender has taken up a position in that direction the evading his position or passing round is not to be done for nothing it costs a sacrifice from this it follows that there is not on the side of the defender such a risk of missing the direction of his enemy neither on the other hand is it so easy for the assailant to pass round his adversary as appears at first sight because there exists beforehand a very distinct and in most cases preponderating motive in favour of one or the other direction and that consequently the defender although his preparations are fixed to one spot will not fail in most cases to come in contact with the mass of the enemy's forces 
In other words, if the defender has put himself in the right position, he may be almost sure that the assailant will come to meet him. But by this we shall not and cannot deny the possibility of the defender sometimes not meeting with the assailant after all these arrangements. And therefore the question arises, what should he then do, and how much of the real advantages of his position still remain available to him? If we ask ourselves what means still remain generally to the defender when the assailant passes by his position, they are the following. 1. To divide his forces instantly, so as to be certain to find the assailant with one portion, and then to support that portion with the other. 2. To take up a position with his force united, and in case the assailant passes by him, to push on rapidly in front of him by a lateral movement. In most cases there will not be time to make such a movement directly to a flank. It will therefore be necessary to take up the new position somewhat further back. 3. With his whole force to attack the enemy in flank. 4. To operate against his communications. 5. By a counter-attack on his theatre of war to do exactly what the enemy has done in passing by us. We introduce this last measure because it is possible to imagine a case in which it may be efficacious but as it is in contradiction to the object of the defence, that is, the grounds on which that form has been chosen, therefore it can only be regarded as an abnormity, which can only take place because the enemy has made some great mistake, or because there are other special features in a particular case. Operating against the enemy's communications implies that our own are superior, which is also one of the fundamental requisites of a good defensive position, but... Although on that ground this action may promise the defender a certain amount of advantage, still in the defence of a theatre of war, it is seldom an operation suited to lead to a decision, which we have supposed to be the object of the campaign. The dimensions of a single theatre of war are seldom so large that the line of communications is exposed to much danger by their length, and even if they were in danger still, the time which the assailant requires for the execution of his blow is usually too short for his progress to be arrested, by the slow effects of the action against his communications. Therefore, this means, open bracket, that is, the action against the communications, close bracket, will prove quite inefficacious in most cases against an enemy determined upon a decision, and also in case the defender seeks such a solution. The object of the three other means which remain for the defender is a direct decision, a meeting of centre of force with centre of force, they correspond better, therefore, with the thing required. But we shall at once say that we decidedly prefer the third to the other two. And without quite rejecting the latter, we hold the former to be in the majority of cases the true means of defence. In a position where our forces are divided, there is always a danger of getting involved in a war of posts, from which, if our adversary is resolute, can follow under the best of circumstances only a relative defence on a large scale, never a decision such as we desire. And even if by superior tact we should be able to avoid this mistake still, by the preliminary resistance being with divided forces, the first shock is sensibly weakened, and we can never be sure that the advanced corps, first engaged, will not suffer disproportionate losses. To this is to be added that the resistance of the corps, which usually ends in its falling back on the main body, appears to the troops in the light of a lost combat or miscarriage of plans, and the moral force suffers accordingly. The second means, that of placing our whole force in front of the enemy, in whichever direction he may bend his march, involves a risk of our arriving too late, and thus between two measures falling short of both. Besides this, a defensive battle requires coolness and consideration, a knowledge, indeed intimate knowledge of the country, which cannot be expected in a hasty oblique movement to a flank. Lastly, positions suitable for a good defensive battlefield are too rarely to be met with to reckon upon them at every point of every road. On the other hand, the third means, namely to attack the enemy in flank, therefore to give battle with a change of front, is attended with great advantages. Firstly, there is always in this case, as we know, an exposure of the lines of communication, here the lines of retreat, and in this respect, the defender has one advantage in his general relations as defender, and next and chiefly, the advantage which we have claimed for the strategic properties of his position at present. 
Secondly, and this is the principal thing, every assailant who attempts to pass by his opponent is placed between two opposite tendencies. His first desire is to advance, to attain the object of his attack, but the possibility of being attacked in flank at any moment creates a necessity for being prepared at any moment to deliver a blow in that direction, and that too a blow with the mass of his forces. These two tendencies are contradictory and beget such a complication in the internal relations open bracket, of his army, close bracket, such a difficulty in the choice of measures, if they are to suit every event, that there can hardly be a more disagreeable position strategically. If the assailant knew with certainty the moment when he would be attacked, he might prepare to receive the enemy with skill and ability, but in his uncertainty on this point, and pressed by the necessity of advancing, it is almost certain that when the moment for battle arrives, it finds him in the midst of hurried and half-finished preparations, and therefore by no means in an advantageous relation to his enemy. If then there are favourable moments for the defender to deliver an offensive battle, it is surely at such a moment as this, above all others, that we may look for success. If we consider further that the knowledge of the country and choice of ground are on the side of the defender, that he can prepare his movements and can time them, no one can doubt that he possesses, in such a situation, a decided superiority, strategically, over his adversary. We think, therefore, the defender occupying a well-chosen position with his forces united may quietly wait for the enemy passing by his army. Should the enemy not attack him in his position, and that an operation against the enemy's communications does not suit the circumstances, there still remains for him an excellent means of bringing about a decision by resorting to a flank attack. If cases of this kind are hardly to be found in military history, the reason is partly that the defender has seldom had the courage to remain firm in such a position, but has either divided his forces or rashly thrown himself in front of his enemy by a cross or diagonal march, or that no assailant dares to venture past the defender under such circumstances, and in that way his movement usually comes to a standstill. The defender is in this case compelled to resort to an offensive battle. The further advantages of the state of expectation of a strong position, of good entrenchments, etc., etc., he must give up. In most cases, the situation in which he finds the advancing enemy will not quite make up for these advantages, for it is just to evade their influence that the assailant has placed himself in the present situation. Still, it always offers him a certain compensation, and theory is, therefore, not just obliged to see a quantity disappear at once from the calculation, to see the pro and contra, mutually cancel each other out, as so often happens, when critical writers of history introduce a little bit of theory. It must not, in fact, be supposed that we are now dealing with logical subtleties. The subject is rather one which, the more it is practically considered, the more it appears as an idea embracing the whole essence of defensive war, everywhere dominating and regulating it. It is only by the determination on the part of the defender to assail his opponent with all his force the moment he passes him by, that he avoids two pitfalls close to which he is led by the defensive form, that is, a division of his force and a hasty flank march to intercept the assailant in front. In both he accepts the law of the assailant, in both he seeks to aid himself through measures of a very critical nature and with a most dangerous degree of haste, and wherever a resolute adversary thirsting for victory and a decision has encountered such a system of defence, he has knocked it on the head. But when the defender has assembled his forces at the right point to fight a general action, if he is determined with this force, come what will, to attack his enemy in flank, he has done right, and is in the right course, and he is supported by all the advantages which the defence can give in his situation. His actions will then bear the stamp of good preparation, coolness, security, unity and simplicity. We cannot here avoid mentioning a remarkable event in history which has a close analogy with the ideas now developed. We do so to anticipate its being used in a wrong application. When the Prussian army was, in October 1806, waiting in Thuringia for the French under Bonaparte, the former was posted between the two great roads, on which the latter might be expected to advance, that is, the road to Berlin by Erfurth, and that of Hof and Leipzig. The first intention of breaking into Franconia straight through the Thuringian forest, and afterwards, when that plan was abandoned, the uncertainty as to which of the roads the French would choose for their advance, 
caused this immediate position as such it must therefore have led to the adoption of the measure we have been discussing a hasty interception of the enemy in front by a lateral movement this was in fact the idea in case the enemy marched by Erfurth, for the roads in that direction were good on the other hand the idea of a movement of this description on the road by hof could not be entertained partly because the army was two or three marches away from that road partly because the deep valley of the saal imposed neither did this plan ever enter into the views of the duke of brunswick so that there was no kind of preparation made for carrying it into effect but it was always contemplated by prince hohenlohe that is by colonel massenbach who exerted all of his influence to draw the duke into this plan still less could the idea be entertained of leaving the position which had been taken on the left bank of the saal to try an offensive battle against bonaparte on his advance that is to such an attack in flank as we have been considering for if the Saal was an obstacle to intercepting the enemy in the last moment a fortiori it would be a still greater obstacle to assuming the offensive at a moment when the enemy would be in possession of the opposite side of the river at least partially the duke therefore determined to wait behind the Saal to see what would happen that is to say if we can call anything a determination which emanated from this many-headed headquarters staff and in this time of confusion and utter indecision whatever may have been the true condition of affairs during this state of expectation the consequent situation of the army was this one that the enemy might be attacked if he crossed the saal to attack the prussian army two that if he did not march against that army operations might be commenced against his communications three if it should be found practicable and advisable he might be intercepted near leipzig by a rapid flank march in the first case the prussian army possessed a great strategic and tactical advantage in the deep valley of the saal in the second the strategic advantage was just as great for the enemy had only a very narrow base between our position and the neutral territory of bohemia whilst ours was extremely broad even in the third case our army covered by the saal was still by no means in a disadvantageous situation all these three measures in spite of the confusion and want of any clear perception at headquarters were really discussed but certainly we cannot wonder that although a right idea may have been entertained it should have entirely failed in the execution by the complete want of resolution and the confusion generally prevailing in the first two cases the position on the left bank of the saal is to be regarded as a real flank position and it had undoubtedly as such very great qualities but in truth against a very superior enemy against a bonaparte a flank position with an army that is not very sure about what it is doing is a very bold measure after long hesitation the duke on the thirteenth adopted the last of the plans proposed but it was too late bonaparte had already commenced to pass the saal and the battles of jena and Auerstadt were inevitable the duke through his indecision had set himself between two stools he quitted his first position too late to push his army in before the enemy and too soon for a battle suited to the object nevertheless the natural strength of this position proved itself so far that the duke was able to destroy the right wing of the enemy's army at Auerstadt, while prince hohenlohe by a bloody retreat was still able to back out of the scrape but at Auerstadt they did not venture to realize the victory which was quite certain and at jena they thought they might reckon upon one which was quite impossible in any case bonaparte felt the strategic importance of the position on the saal so much that he did not venture to pass it by but determined on a passage of the saal in sight of the enemy by what we have now said we think we have sufficiently specified the relations between the defence and the attack when a defensive course of action is intended and we believe we have shown also the threads to which according to their situation and connection the different subjects of the plan of defence attach themselves to go through the different arrangements more in detail does not come within our views for that would lead us into a boundless field of particular cases when a general has laid down for his direction a distinct point he will see how far it agrees with geographical statistical and political circumstances the material and personal relations of his own army and that of the enemy and how the one or the other may require that his plan should be modified in carrying them into effect but in order more distinctly to connect and look closer at the gradations in the defence specified in the chapter on the different kinds of defence we shall here lay before our readers what seems to us most important in relation to the same generally 
1. Reasons for marching against the enemy with a view to an offensive battle may be as follows. A. If we know that the enemy is advancing with his forces very much divided, and therefore we have reason to expect a victory, although we are, upon the whole, much weaker. But such an advance on the part of the assailant is in itself very improbable, and consequently, unless we know of it upon certain information, the plan is not good. For to reckon upon it, and rest all our hopes on it, through a mere supposition, and without sufficient motive, leads generally to a very dangerous situation. We do not, then, find things as we expected. We are obliged to give up the offensive battle. We are not prepared to fight on the defensive. We are obliged to commence with the retreat against our will, and leave almost everything to chance. This is very much what occurred in the defence conducted by the army under Dona against the Russians in the campaign of 1759, and which, under General Wiedel, ended in the unfortunate battle of Zulichau. This measure shortens matters so much that plan-makers are only too ready to propose it without taking much trouble to inquire how far the hypothesis upon which it rests is well founded. B. If we are generally in sufficient strength for battle, and C. If a blundering, irresolute adversary specially invites an attack. In this case, the effect of surprise may be worth more than any assistance furnished by the ground through a good position. It is the real essence of good generalship thus to bring into play the power of the moral forces. But theory can never say loud enough, nor often enough, there must be an objective foundation for these suppositions. Without such foundation, to be always talking of surprises and the superiority of novel or unusual modes of attack, and thereon to found plans, considerations, criticisms, is acting without any grounds, and is altogether objectionable. D, when the nature of our army makes it specially suited for the offensive. It was certainly not a visionary or false idea when Frederick the Great conceived that in his mobile, courageous army, full of confidence in him, obedient by habit, trained to precision, animated and elevated by pride, and with its perfection in the oblique attack, he possessed an instrument which, in his firm and daring hand, was much more suited to attack than defence. All these qualities were wanting in his opponents, and in this respect, therefore, he had the most decided superiority. To make use of this was worth more to him, in most cases, than to take to his assistance entrenchments and obstacles of ground. But such a superiority will always be rare. A well-trained army, thoroughly practised in great movements, has only part of the above advantages. If Frederick the Great maintained that the Prussian army was particularly adapted for the attack, and this has been incessantly repeated since his time, still we should not attach too much weight to any such saying. In most cases in war we feel more exhilarated, more courageous, when acting offensively than defensively. But this is a feeling which all troops have in common and there is hardly an army respecting which its generals and leaders have not made the same assertion open bracket, as Frederick. Close bracket. We must, therefore, not too readily rely on an appearance of superiority, and through that neglect real advantages. A very natural and weighty reason for resorting to an offensive battle may be the composition of the army as regards the three arms, for instance, a numerous cavalry and little artillery. We continue the enumeration of reasons. E when we can nowhere find a good position, F, when we must hasten with the decision, G, lastly, the combined influence of several or all of these reasons. 2. The waiting for the enemy in a locality where it is intended to attack him, open bracket, Minden, 1759, close bracket, naturally proceeds from A, there being no such disproportion of force to our disadvantage as to make it necessary to seek a strong position and strengthen it by entrenchments. B. A locality having been found particularly adapted to the purpose. The properties which determine this belong to tactics. We shall only observe that these properties chiefly consist in an easy approach for the defender from his side and in all kinds of obstacles on the side next to the enemy. 3. A position will be taken with the express intention of there waiting the attack of the enemy, a. If the disproportion of forces compels us to seek cover from natural obstacles or behind field works, b. When the country affords an excellent position for our purposes. 
the two modes of defence, two and three, will come more into consideration according as we do not seek the decision itself, but content ourselves with a negative result, and have reason to think that our opponent is wavering and irresolute, and that he will in the end fail to carry out his plans. For an entrenched, unassailable camp only fulfils the object A if it is situated at an extremely important strategic point. The character of such a position consists in this, that we cannot be driven out of it, the enemy is therefore obliged to try some other means, that is, to pursue his object without touching this camp, or to blockade it and reduce it by starvation. If it is impossible for him to do this, then the strategic qualities of the position must be very great. B. If we have reason to expect aid from abroad. Such was the case with the Saxon army in its position at Pirna. Notwithstanding all that has been said against the measure, on account of the ill-success which attended it in this instance, it is perfectly certain that 17,000 Saxons could never have been able to neutralise 40,000 Prussians in any other way. If the Austrians were unable to make better use of the superiority obtained at Lowesitz, that only shows the badness of their whole method of war, as well as of their whole military organisation, and that there cannot be a doubt that if the Saxons, instead of taking post in the camp of Pirna, had retired into Bohemia, Frederick the Great would have driven both Austrians and Saxons beyond Prague, and taken that place in the same campaign. Whoever does not admit the value of this advantage, and limits his consideration of the capture of the whole of the Saxon army, shows himself incapable of making a calculation of all the circumstances in a case of this kind. And without calculation, no certain deduction can be obtained. But as the cases A and B very rarely occur, therefore the entrenched camp is a measure which requires to be well considered and which is very seldom suitable in practice. The hope of inspiring the enemy with respect by such a camp, and thus reducing him to a state of complete inactivity, is attended with too much danger, namely with the danger of being obliged to fight without the possibility of retreat. If Frederick the Great gained his object in this way at Bunzelwitz, we must admire the correct judgment he formed of his adversary, but we must certainly also lay more stress than usual on the resources which he would have found at the last moment to clear a road for the remains of his army, and also on the irresponsibility of a king. 5. If there is one, or if there are several fortresses near the frontier, then the great question arises whether the defender should seek an action before or behind them. The latter recommends itself, a, by the superiority of the enemy in numbers, which forces us to break his power before coming to a final struggle, b, by these fortresses being near, so that the sacrifice of territory is not greater than we are compelled to make, c, by the fitness of the fortresses for defence. One principal use of fortresses is unquestionably, or should be, to break the enemy's force in his advance and to weaken considerably that portion which we intend to bring to an engagement. If we so seldom see this use made of fortresses, that proceeds from the cases in which a decisive battle is sought for by one of the opposing parties being very rare, but that is the only kind of case which we treat of here. We therefore look upon it as a principle, equally simple and important in all cases, in which the defender has one or more fortresses near him, that he should keep them before him and give the decisive battle behind them. We admit that a battle lost within the line of our fortresses will compel us to retreat further into the interior of the country than one lost on the other side, tactical results in both cases being the same, although the causes of the difference have their origin rather in the imagination than in real things. Neither do we forget that a battle may be given beyond the fortresses in a well-chosen position, whilst inside them the battle, in most cases, must be an offensive one, particularly if the enemy is laying siege to a fortress, which is in danger of being lost. But what signify these nice shades of distinction as compared to the advantage that, in the decisive battle, we meet the enemy weakened by a fourth or third of his force, perhaps one-half, if there are many fortresses? We think, therefore, that in all cases of an inevitable decision, whether sought for by the offensive or the defensive, and that the latter is not tolerably sure of a victory, or if the nature of the country does not offer some most decisive reason to give battle in a position further forward, in all these cases we say when a fortress is situated near at hand and capable of defence, the defender should by all means withdraw at once behind it and let the decision take place on this side, consequently with its cooperation. 
if he takes up his position so close to the fortress that the assailant can neither form the siege of nor blockade the place without first driving him off he places the assailant under the necessity of attacking him the defender in his position to us therefore of all defensive measures in a critical situation none appears so simple and efficacious as the choice of a good position near to and behind a strong fortress at the same time the question would wear a different aspect if the fortress was situated far back for then it would be necessary to abandon a considerable part of our theatre of war a sacrifice which as we know should not be made unless in a case of great urgency in such a case the measure would bear more resemblance to a retreat into the interior of the country another condition is the fitness of the place for defence it is well known that there are fortified places especially large ones which are not fit to be brought into contact with an enemy's army because they could not resist the sudden assault by a powerful force in this case our position must at all events be so close behind that we could support the garrison lastly the retreat into the interior of the country is only a natural resource under the following circumstances a when owing to the physical and moral relation in which we stand as respects the enemy the idea of successful resistance on the frontier or near it cannot be entertained b when it is a principal object to gain time c when there are peculiarities in the country which are favourable to the measure a subject on which we have already treated in the twenty-fifth chapter we thus close the chapter on the defence of a theatre of war if a defensive solution is sought for by one or other party and is therefore inevitable but it must be particularly borne in mind that events in war do not exhibit themselves in such a pure abstract form and that therefore if our maxims and arguments should be used in reasoning on actual war our thirtieth chapter should also be kept in view and we must suppose the general in the majority of cases as placed between two tendencies urged more towards one or the other according to circumstances end of chapter twenty eight chapter twenty nine defence of a theatre of war continued successive resistance we have proved in the twelfth and thirteenth chapters that in strategy a successive resistance is inconsistent with the nature of the thing and that all forces available should be used simultaneously as regards forces which are movable this requires no further demonstration but when we look at the seat of war itself with its fortresses the natural divisions of the ground and even the extent of its surface as being also elements of war these being immovable we can only either bring them gradually into use or we must at once place ourselves so far back that all agencies of this kind which are to be brought into activity are in our front then everything which can contribute to weaken the enemy in the territory which he has occupied comes at once into activity for the assailant must at least blockade the defender's fortresses he must keep the country in subjection by garrisons and other posts he has long marches to make and everything he requires must be brought from a distance etc all these agencies commence to work whether the assailant makes his advance before or after the decision but in the former case their influence is somewhat greater from this therefore it follows that if the defender chooses to transfer his decision to a point further back he has thus the means of bringing at once into play all these immovable elements of military force on the other hand it is clear that this transfer of the solution open bracket on the part of the defender close bracket does not alter the extent of the influence of victory which the assailant gains in treating of the attack we shall examine more closely the extent of the influence of a victory here we shall only observe that it reaches to the exhaustion of the superiority that is the resultant of the physical and moral relations now this superiority exhausts itself in the first place by the duties required from the forces on the theatre of war and secondly by losses in combats the diminution of force arising from these two causes cannot be essentially altered whether the combats take place at the commencement or at the end near the frontier or further towards the interior of the country open bracket vom oder hinten close bracket we think for example that a victory gained by bonaparte over the russians at vilna eighteen twelve would have carried him just as far as that of borodino assuming that it was equally great and that a victory at moscow would not have carried him any further moscow was in either case the limit of this sphere of victory indeed it cannot be doubted for a moment that a decisive battle on the frontier open bracket for other reasons close bracket would have produced much greater results through victory and then perhaps 
the sphere of its influence would have been wider therefore in this view also the transfer of the decision to a point further back is not necessary for the defence in the chapter on the various means of resistance that method of delaying the decision which may be regarded as an extreme form was brought before us under the name of retreat into the interior and is a particular method of defence in which the object is rather that the assailant should wear himself out than that he should be destroyed by the sword on the field of battle but it is only when such an intention predominates that the delaying of the decisive battle can be regarded as a peculiar method of resistance for otherwise it is evident that an infinite number of gradations may be conceived in this method and that these may be combined with all other means of defence we therefore look upon the greater or less cooperation of the theatre of war not as a special form of defence but as nothing more than a discretionary introduction into the defence of the immovable means of resistance just according as circumstances and the nature of the situation may appear to require but now if the defender does not think he requires any assistance from these immovable forces for his purpose decision or if the further sacrifice connected with the use of them is too great and they are kept in reserve for the future and form a sort of succession of reinforcements which perhaps enable the possibility of keeping the movable forces in such a condition that they will be able to follow up the first favourable decision with a second or perhaps in the same manner even a third that is to say in this manner a successive application of his forces becomes possible if the defender loses a battle on the frontier which does not amount to a complete defeat we may very well imagine that by placing himself behind the nearest fortresses he will then be in a condition to accept battle again indeed if he is only dealing with an opponent who has not much resolution then perhaps some considerable obstacle of ground will be quite sufficient as to a means of stopping the enemy there is therefore in strategy in the use of the theatre of war as well as in everything else an economy of force the less one can make suffice the better but there must be sufficient and here as well as in commerce there is something to be thought of besides mere niggardliness but in order to prevent a great misconception we must draw away to this that the subject of our present consideration is not how much resistance an army can offer or the enterprises which it can undertake after a lost battle but only the result which we can promise ourselves beforehand from this subsequent act in our defence consequently how high we can estimate it in our plan here there is only one point which the defender has to look into which is the character and the situation of his opponent an adversary weak in character with little self-confidence without noble ambition and placed under great restrictions will content himself in case he is successful with a moderate advantage and timidly hold back at every fresh offer of a decision which the defender ventures to make in this case the defender may count upon the beneficial use of all the means of resistance of his theatre of war in succession in constantly fresh although in themselves small combats in which the prospect always brightens of an ultimate decision in his favour but who does not feel that we are now on the road to campaigns devoid of decision which are much more the field of a successive application of force of these we shall speak in the following chapter end of chapter twenty nine recording by timothy ferguson gold coast australia